Hey, this is Dave DeCamp from Antiwar.com. This is Antiwar News for Tuesday, April 18th, 2023. All right, the first story at the top of Antiwar.com today. 200 U.S. military trainers are now in Taiwan. So the U.S. has sent over 200 troops to Taiwan, significantly increasing the U.S. military presence on the island. This was reported by Taiwan News on Monday. The report cited sources who spoke with Up Media, which is another Taiwanese news site, and they said that the U.S. Indo-Pacific Command deployed more than 200 personnel to Taiwan to assist the island's armed forces with training. The Taiwanese news agency CNA also reported that about 200 U.S. military advisors are now stationed across Taiwan. When asked to confirm the deployment, the Pentagon declined to comment, but affirmed its support for Taipei. So I asked the Pentagon on Monday if they could confirm this, and they actually got back to me. The Pentagon usually ignores me. Um, But this is Pentagon spokesman, Lieutenant Colonel Marty Miners. He told me, quote, we don't have a comment on specific operations, engagements or training, but I would highlight that our support for and defense relationship with Taiwan remains aligned against the current threat posed by the People's Republic of China. Our commitment to Taiwan is rock solid and contributes to the maintenance of peace and stability across the Taiwan Strait and within the region, end quote. Um, So again, not confirming it, but also not denying it. And the Wall Street Journal first reported back in February that the U.S. planned to deploy between 100 and 200 troops to Taiwan. The U.S. previously had only about 30 troops on the island, so it is a significant increase. So since the U.S. severed diplomatic relations with Taipei in 1979, the U.S. would still deploy, you know, a handful of military trainers to Taiwan. And this small U.S. military presence, you know, because they were selling them U.S. weapons, so they were trained how to use them. And this small U.S. military presence in Taiwan was always an open secret, but it was never officially confirmed until 2021 when President Tsai Ing-wen became the first Taiwanese leader to acknowledge that U.S. troops were on the island She was the first one to do that since 1979. The increase in U.S. troops in Taiwan risks provoking a response from China as Beijing has strongly warned against the growing U.S.-Taiwan ties. China's People's Liberation Army, they just conducted major live fire exercises around Taiwan in response to Tsai meeting with House Speaker Kevin McCarthy. So we will see if... um, they respond specifically to this or, you know, it's sometimes it's hard to tell exactly why they, they launch drills, but we might see something in response to this. We'll see. Uh, another thing that, that was part of that, uh, the 2023 NDAA that President Biden signed into law and China responded to that by launching big drills around Taiwan. That included provisions kind of calling for greater U.S. and Taiwanese military relationship. And then we see this uh, deployment. All right. Uh, The next one here, the U.S. sails a warship through the Taiwan Strait after China's live fire drills. 
So the U.S. sent a warship through the Taiwan Strait on Sunday, and this was a few days after China concluded those big live fire exercises in the area. And after they concluded the drills that were specifically over the Cy McCarthy meeting, there was still a good amount of Chinese military activity in the area. So the U.S. Navy's 7th Fleet said that the guided missile destroyer USS Milius made the passage. The 7th Fleet framed the transit as routine, but of course, U.S. military inactivity. U.S. military activity in the Taiwan Strait angers Beijing. China's People's Liberation Army, the PLA, said that it closely monitored and tracked the warship as it sailed through the strait. A spokesman for the PLA's Eastern Theater Command said that its forces were on high alert at all times and would resolutely defend Chinese sovereignty. Last week, this same U.S. warship, Milius, stoked tensions with Beijing by sailing within 12 nautical miles of a Chinese-controlled reef in the South China Sea. Since the Obama administration, the U.S. has done this. You know, they sail near these Chinese-controlled rocks and reefs. In the South China Sea, they call them freedom of navigation operations. And tensions are pretty high in the region and specifically in the South China Sea as the U.S. and the Philippines are conducting their largest ever joint military exercise, which includes firing missiles into the South China Sea. And the drills come after Washington and Manila inked a deal that expands the U.S. military presence in the Philippines, gives them access to four new bases. Uh, so it'll be a total of nine bases that the U.S can rotate troops through in the Philippines. So tensions, U.S.-China tensions continue to rise. All right, the next one here, a bill would make President Biden disclose the number of U.S. troops in Ukraine. So Representative Matt Gates uh, has introduced another interesting piece of legislation. On Monday, he introduced a resolution that would require President Biden to disclose the number of U.S. troops inside Ukraine and share all documents outlining U.S. military assistance for Kiev with the House. If the resolution is passed, it would require President Biden and Secretary of Defense Lloyd Austin to share the requested information within 14 days. The introduction comes after one of the documents allegedly leaked by Airman Jack Teixeira confirmed that U.S. Special Operations Forces are in Ukraine. So Gates said in a statement when he introduced this resolution, quote, the Biden administration and other allied countries have been misleading the world on the state of the war in Ukraine. There must be total transparency from this administration to the American people when they are gambling war with a nuclear adversary by having special forces operating in Ukraine, end quote. So according to the document, 97 NATO special operations soldiers are in Ukraine, including 14 Americans. And the leak confirmed in October 2022 report from The Intercept that did say U.S. special operations forces were deployed to Ukraine after Russia's invasion. So that intercept report, it did not say what the American special operators were doing inside Ukraine, but it said it was part of a broad covert operation that includes CIA personnel who are also on the ground. And we have no idea how many of these CIA personnel are there. And the leaked document said that there's a total of 29 Defense Department personnel, and that includes the special operators, which is 14 of them. And the total also includes members of the Marine Security Guard Security Augmentation Unit, the MSAU, and they're typically deployed for embassy security. 
And that total number also includes the defense attache. There's always a U.S., generally a U.S. military official, a U.S. military officer uh, that's stationed at uh, a U.S. embassy, uh, you know, whether it's in Ukraine or in a different country. And also the Office of Defense Cooperation. Uh, They're usually at U.S. embassies around the world as well. And the Pentagon said in October 2022 that personnel under the defense attache and the ODC uh, returned to Ukraine. I believe they returned to Ukraine in August 2022 because if you remember, they closed down the embassy and then they reopened it. And the Pentagon said back then that they were conducting on-site weapons inspections inside Ukraine. So they're based at the embassy, but they also go out and do weapons inspections. Now, when it comes to the special operations forces, you know, a lot of people are are downplaying this and saying, oh, it's all just embassy security. But again, you know, this intercept report makes it sound like uh, they're doing a lot more than that. And the British have 50 uh, special operations forces there in Ukraine. And that was also reported by multiple outlets that the British, uh, the New York Times, the Times of London, uh, I believe some other sources um, have reported that. So the, who knows what the British are up to? You know, they, they're probably training Ukrainians, I would guess. I remember a report way early in the war from the Times of London said that British uh, SAS soldiers were training Ukrainians how to use anti-tank weapons near Kiev. This was just a couple months into the war. So um, this resolution, you know, who knows how much support it will get, but it's good to see at least somebody uh, in Congress is calling for transparency because we we just don't know you know, really what these troops are up to inside Ukraine. And again, it is very dangerous what we're risking here, of course, when it comes to all the support for Ukraine, but especially, you know, boots on the ground, because that's what this is. All right. The next one we got, Brazil's Lula says that the U.S. should stop encouraging the Ukraine war. So Brazilian President Lula said in China on Saturday that the U.S. should stop encouraging the war in Ukraine and seek peace instead. Lula told reporters in Beijing, quote, the United States needs to stop encouraging war and start talking about peace. The European Union needs to start talking about peace so that we can convince Putin and Zelensky that peace is in the interest of everyone and that war is only interesting for now to the two of them. End quote. So while he was in China, the Brazilian leader, it was his first trip to China since he uh, became president of Brazil again, he said that he discussed an idea with Chinese President Xi Jinping to form a group of countries that seek peace in Ukraine to push for negotiations. Lula said, quote, I have a theory that I have already defended with Macron, with Olaf Scholz of Germany, and with Biden. And yesterday we discussed at length with Xi Jinping. It is necessary to con to create a group of countries willing to find a way to make peace, end quote. So the U.S., of course, has discouraged peace talks throughout the war while flooding Ukraine with weapons. The Biden administration has also come out strongly against Beijing's efforts to push for peace in Ukraine. The White House said that it opposed any calls for a ceasefire ahead of Xi's recent trip to Moscow. During his visit to China, Lula also spoke out against the U.S. dollar's uh, hegemony as the world's reserve currency. This was a few days uh, before he made these comments about peace in Ukraine. He said, quote, why should every country have to be tied to the dollar for trade? Who decided the dollar would be the world's currency? End quote. And ahead of his trip to China, 
uh, China and Brazil signed a deal to trade in their own currency. So uh, another step that threatens, you know, the U.S. dollar as the world's reserve currency. And, you know, it seemed like the Biden administration wanted Lula to beat Bolsonaro. And really, their foreign policies are more similar than than most people probably realize. But it does seem like Lula is going pretty hard, uh, you know, against what the U.S. would want him to do. And there was a report in the Washington Post that said, you know, that was really trashing him for, you know, doing these things, uh, speaking out against the war and, uh, you know, calling for more trade with China using their own currencies. So they're not they're not too happy with them over there at the Washington Post. All right. The next one here, Ukraine rejects an Iraqi offer to mediate negotiations with Russia. So Ukrainian foreign minister Dmitry Kuleba on Monday rejected Iraq's offer to mediate talks between Ukraine and Russia during a visit to Baghdad. And it was his first time visiting Iraq since the Russian invasion. So Iraqi foreign minister Fuad Hussein met with Kuleba and called for a ceasefire, saying that it was the same message he gave to Russian Foreign Minister Sergei Lavrov when he visited Beijing in February. So this is Hussein, the uh, Iraqi Foreign Minister. He said, quote, we always strive to be a part of the solution. Wars end with negotiation and dialogue. That's why we believe in the language of dialogue. That's why when we negotiate or discuss with officials in Moscow and Minister Lavrov was here in the same hall, we mentioned the same principles and we told them that we support a ceasefire in the start of negotiations, end quote. Hussein said that Iraq, quote, has expressed in communication with countries that have tension between them and is ready to be in service of peace, end quote. Uh, Kuleba declined the offer and reaffirmed Kiev's position that peace talks with Moscow cannot happen until Russia withdraws from all the territory that it, it has captured. Kuleba said, quote, Russia is on the offensive, and this is the biggest hurdle on the way to peace. We need Russia to agree with a very simple fact it has to stop the war and withdraw, end quote. So Kuleba has maintained very maximalist demands uh, concerning peace talks with Moscow. He's previously said negotiations can only happen, you know, after Russia withdraws and after there are tribunals for alleged Russian war crimes. And then for their part, Moscow maintains that any future peace deal must recognize that Ukrainian territory, the Ukrainian territory that it has annexed in Zaporozhye, Kherson, and in the Donbass. So they're saying that has to be recognized as Russian, which is really a non-starter for talks with Kiev at this time. And things won't change really I, unless the U.S. presses, you know, Ukraine and leverages aid or cuts off aid and makes them negotiate, makes them talk. All right, the next one here, more good news in Yemen. The Saudis release more Houthi prisoners. So the Saudi-led coalition in Yemen on Monday released more Houthi detainees as part of a unilateral prisoner release as the prospect for peace for a peace deal between the warring sides continues to grow. So according to AP, a spokesman for the Saudi-led coalition said that 104 Houthi detainees were released. And this step came a day after the Houthi and Saudi-backed government, after the Houthis and the Saudi-backed government completed a swap that freed over 900 people, including 700 Houthis, and some Saudi and Sudanese troops. So the so this new prisoner released by the Saudis, they just seem to have done it on their own, I guess, as a trust building uh, step for the for the peace talks. 
And also on Monday, the cradle reported that three ships carrying hundreds of containers of food and commercial goods docked in Yemen's Red Sea port of Hodeidah. The Saudi Houthi peace talks that have been taking place have focused on lifting the blockade on Yemen, which has been implemented since 2015. So Houthi and Saudi officials, they recently held Omani brokered negotiations in the Houthi-controlled capital of Sana'a last week. No deal was agreed upon, but the Houthis said that talks would continue after the Muslim holiday of Eid al-Fitr, which is being celebrated this Thursday and Friday. As Yemen peace efforts have made progress, President Biden sent high-level officials to the region, including Brett McGurk, the top Middle East official on the National Security Council. So according to the White House, during meetings between U.S. and Saudi officials, the U.S. side, quote, confirmed its support for the defense of Saudi Arabia against threats from Yemen and elsewhere, end quote. So that signals that the administration is saying that they're willing to support the Saudis in the war again if the peace process fails. And they're still supporting them. I mean, the war is still going on. There's still some limited fighting on the ground and and shelling. And just a little background, since the Saudi-led coalition intervened in Yemen in 2015 with full U.S. support, at least 377,000 people have been killed in the war. That was as of the end of 2021, and more than half died due to starvation and disease that was caused by the blockade and the coalition's brutal bombing campaign. Just a brutal war. So hopefully, you know, a peace deal happens and, and we don't have to worry about it escalating again. But then you see these U.S. officials going there, which I don't think what they're saying doesn't sound good. Um, hopefully they they work it out, the Saudis and the Houthis. All right. The next one here, Janet Yellen says that sanctions risk U.S. dollar uh, hegemony. So Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen on Sunday acknowledged that U.S. economic sanctions risk the dominance of the U.S. dollar as the world's reserve currency as they push targeted countries to seek alternatives. So Yellen told CNN, quote, there is a risk when we use financial sanctions that are linked to the role of the dollar that over time it could continue to undermine the hegemony of the U- of the U.S. dollar, end quote. Countries targeted by U.S. and other Western sanctions have naturally increased trade and cooperation. Uh, you know, what else were they going to do? Sometimes using alternatives to the dollar. One example I always think of is that Iran and Venezuela under the Trump administration both got put under very uh, strict sanctions that are still in effect today, although Venezuela got some very slight relief um, they're just allowing, um, what's the company, the oil company there, Sitco, to pump some oil. Uh, but anyway, so during the Trump administration, they started trading gas for gold because gold was is one currency that the U.S. government can't touch unless they actually seize it. And they actually did go ahead and seize some of the gas uh, off the ships that were trying to deliver it. Um, so Yellen said, quote, of course, it does create a desire on the part of China, of Russia, of Iran to find an alternative. But the dollar is used as a global currency for reasons that are not easy for other countries to find an alternative with the same properties, end quote. So she's, she's still saying uh, that the dollar isn't uh, in too much danger. So while she was recognizing how U.S. sanctions can hurt the dollar, Yellen said that she still supported using them against other countries, calling sanctions an extremely important tool. 
And history has shown us that sanctions harm the civilian population of the targeted country while doing nothing to change the targeted government. And the best example of that is Cuba. It's been under a trade embargo since 1962. Uh, the same government uh, still in charge over there. Last month, Yellen recognized that U.S. sanctions on Iran have caused a real economic crisis in the country, but haven't changed the government's behavior. Despite this, she said the Biden administration plans to impose more sanctions on the Islamic Republic. So she says on one hand, yeah, the sanctions on Iran aren't working. Oh, we're going to put more on. And then in this case, she says, yeah, you know, all these sanctions are going to probably make more, more alternatives to the dollar, but we're, we're still going to keep using them. So it's very strange, you know, the things that she's been saying lately. But some of it is uh, very true, uh, like what she said about the dollar and the sanctions on Iran. All right, the next one here, a leak reveals the U.S. spying on the U.N. Secretary General. So classified documents allegedly leaked by Air National Guardsman Jack Teixeira have revealed that the U.S. is closely spying on U.N. Secretary General Antonio Guterres, and the U.S. is not happy with his engagement with Moscow. Several documents detail his communications, including one that accuses him of undermining efforts to take action against Russia over its invasion of Ukraine. The document addresses his communications with Moscow regarding the grain deal that unlocked Ukraine's Black Sea ports. If you remember earlier in the war when uh, ships couldn't leave the, the Black Sea ports of Ukraine due to all the mines that were placed in the harbor, in the harbors, um, you know, the U.S. was complaining about it. But the U.N. and Turkey actually did something and brokered a deal to get uh, the ships moving again. But the U.S. doesn't seem like they're happy with what Guterres has done. To broker the deal between Moscow and Kiev, the U.N. agreed to help facilitate the export of Russian fertilizer and grain, which has been hindered by Western sanctions despite exemptions for agricultural goods. How I understand it's more so the fertilizer that they've been having trouble with. And again, you know, history shows us when it comes to sanctions that if there's exemptions, it doesn't matter. It still causes shortages of those goods for a whole number of reasons. But when it comes to shipping, uh, a lot of ports, a lot of insurance companies, they'll say, ah, it's a Russian ship. I don't want to deal with it. Even if it, you know, has something that's exempt, uh, just don't want to bother. The document, so this is, again, according to one of these leaks, uh, I included the document here. So the document reads, quote, UN Secretary General Guterres is taking steps to accommodate Russia in an effort to protect the Black Sea Grain Initiative, which he considers a pivotal UN success and key to addressing global food insecurity. And his actions are undermining broader efforts to hold Moscow accountable for its actions in Ukraine. And quote, the document was likely written either in late February or early March before Russia and Ukraine agreed to extend the grain deal on March 18th. The document says that in early February, Guterres, quote, urged Russian Foreign Minister Sergei Lavrov in a letter to renew the BSGI before its term expires on March 18th. And Guterres emphasized his efforts to improve Russia's ability to export even if that involves sanctioned Russian entities or individuals. And this is according to FISA-derived signal intelligence, end quote. So that signal intelligence refers to information obtained by intercepting communications. In response to the revelation that the U.S. was spying on Guterres, 
His spokesman told Al Jazeera that he is, quote, not surprised by the fact that people are spying on him and listening in on his private conversations. What is surprising is the malfeasance or incompetence that allows for such private conversations to be distorted and become public, end quote. So it sounds like he's saying that they distorted what Guterres was saying, you know, is doing uh, when it comes to Russia. And there were other documents that detail private communications between Guterres and his deputy. So um, several documents showing that the U.S. is spying on on him. And I didn't see this get much attention. I mean, we've, we've heard a lot about the spying, but you would think, you know, you know, say it was China or, or another country that they found out was was eavesdropping, listening in on the, the head of the U.N.'s phone calls and everything. It, I feel like it would be a bigger scandal. Um, you know, all of this spying that the U.S. is doing and was revealed to be doing by these leaks was pretty much, I guess, already known, um, you know, thanks to Snowden. And even before that, there was always stories about the U.S. spying on its allies. But still, it just seems like a big deal <laughs> to me, at least. And the way they assess everything, you know, they don't care about his efforts to address global food shortages. They're just saying, oh, he's undermining how we can hurt Russia. All right. The last one here, this is just uh, from Al Jazeera about the battles in Sudan and the battles between the Sudanese army and an RSF intensify on the third day. So people in Khartoum have awakened to a third day of heavy clashes between the Sudanese army and the paramilitary group. Rapid Support Forces, that's the RSF, as the battle for control of the country intensified. Air raids and shelling on Monday struck parts of the capital and the adjoining city of Amdurman. Uh, sustained firing was also heard near the military headquarters with white smoke rising from the area. Residents hunkering down in their homes reported power outages and incidents of looting. So the clashes are part of a power struggle between General Abdel Fattah El-Burhan, the commander of the armed forces of Sudan, and General Mohamed Hamdan Dagola, who is the head of the RSF. The two generals are former allies who jointly orchestrated in October 21 a military coup that derailed Sudan's short-lived transition to democracy following longtime ruler Omar al-Bashir's overthrow in 2019. Al-Bashir was in charge over there since the 90s he was thrown out and then in october 21 there was this coup and now the the coup plotters are fighting each other it looks like um so no sign that this fighting is going to end anytime soon between these two guys now that's it for the news go check out our viewpoints we have one from ted galen carpenter economic sanctions are simultaneously ineffective and cruel Go check that out. We have one from John V. Walsh, Dis Diplomacy for Peace, Dead in the U.S., Blossoms Elsewhere. Um, go check that out. We also have one from Elizabeth Voss over at Consortium News. Corporate media are the anti-WikiLeaks. One from Michael Clare, Creating a Hypersonic Pentagon Budget. And then the spotlight from James Bovard, Endangering Washington's Divine Right to Deceive. And that's over at the Mises Institute. Uh, that is everything for today. Uh, you could go check out our blog too. Again, you know, and we have just a ton of other content on the page here. So just because you listen to the show doesn't mean that you you don't you shouldn't visit antiwar.com every day. <laughs> uh, but that's it for me for today. You could always support us at antiwar.com slash donate. Like and subscribe on YouTube. 
Odyssey or Rumble, wherever you prefer to watch. If you listen, um, then you know you know how to find it on the podcast apps. You could leave reviews there. That helps. Uh, but that's it for me for today. I'll be back tomorrow. Thanks for listening. <laughs>